Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. I'm Tom Edwards. On today's programme, we're meeting the founder of a handbag brand that emphasises the emotional aspects of its products, encouraging customers to think about the sensory nature of their purchases. At least four designs have come directly from conversations with customers. That kind of upstream thinking of what are people really looking for? Let's respond to that. And later, Monocle's fashion editor stops by for a look ahead to what's in in 2024. Going a little bit off the beaten track and and finding these names and and not relying on on a logo or a trend. Local brands, local creativity is the way forward in the new year. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Ali Abdelal is the founder, designer and creative director of Ruskin, a luxury handbag brand focused on creating unique and premium products using Herdwick wool and Italian leather. The label has deep roots in the Lake District here in England, where this special and rare breed of sheep is found. It's also where the idea for Ruskin was born after Ali had a run-in with a local farmer in 2015. Ali stopped by Midori House to chat about creating products with lasting integrity, timeless design and artisanal production, with bags crafted in Italy from the world's finest leather. She began by telling me what the Ruskin philosophy is all about. Yeah, so, I mean, it's something that's very deeply ingrained in Ruskin is I think we're all hardwired for the tactile world and I think that's very much what we're about at Ruskin is encouraging people to think about what they're purchasing and that they're falling in love with it because there's something more to it than just the first bit of design that you see, that there's something in the the tactile nature of it that runs a little bit deeper. It's a bit (laughs) slippery and hard to define that, but for us it did does carry some weight. Those warm, fluffy feelings are not really the <laughs> the things that are easy to, to push. But for us, underneath it all, I think that's what we're we're trying to encourage is that people, you know, fall in love with something because it it's tapping into their sensory emotions. So. Uh, well I think that's really important and the good things. We've got some time. So okay. those slippery definitions we can we can we can refine <laughs> them, them and, a bit. <laughs> and focus on them today. Let's talk a little bit though, if we're talking about origin stories and yeah. and provenance and so forth, let's talk a little bit about the Lake District. And yes. I think look, our listeners are all around the world, but even in the most far flung locales, they may well have at least heard of the Lake District if they've not visited. Set the scene for us. I hope bit. so. I mean I really hope they have heard of it and that they will one day get a chance to go there. It's home for me. I grew up there. I went to school there for secondary school. I've since lived around the world, but really it will always be home. You know, it just it just uh, stays with me as home. Probably because of the mountains, it derives so much like pleasure and peace from going back there. And when I head up that motorway into the first outer reaches of the Lake District, shoulders go down and oh, we're home, you know. So so that really, that sort of sets the scene for wh- where I came from. But the idea for Ruskin, it came about by, I was at home running in the fells. And that day there was really nothing to recommend it. It was, <laughs> the, the the rain was constant, the mist was down, the visibility was down, I was covered in mud from waist down. <laughs> and as I was running down from the fells and getting towards the valley floor, I bumped into a local farmer. 
I just got chatting to him and I said, you know, are you taking the sheep down to dry them out? Because it was really very miserable. And we just got chatting and he, he, he talked to me about their wool and the value in it. And he told me about how people used to use it. The fell runners used to use it and they used to stuff it in their shoes because it's got a natural lanolin in it. It's got a sort of water resistant, waterproofing in it and it's warm and it doesn't rub. And it's very strong as a fibre. So I talked to him about that. And then he said to me, just as a, a throwaway comment at the end, there's really something you could do with it. You know, if you had time, there's so much value in that wool. There's, there's something that, you know, it could be used for. And we parted company and I carried on down. And then my mind went into sort of an overdrive. So my running slowed, but my my brain sort of sped up because I was thinking, well, you're right. I mean, there I have some time and to think about this. And there is so much value in this precious natural resource because herd wicker, they're a rare breed and particularly to the Lake District. And so I carried on down thinking about this idea. And then that evening, I sat down with my husband by the fire at home and I started telling him about this conversation. And then this really set in motion a sort of domino effect. <laughs> so the I, I shared this this conversation and the idea of what you could do with this fibre. And he's he's from a business background, so I think he he didn't think I was crazy, which was great, but he knew as I was going down this road of a business idea, it's a really long route, you know. So after I told him about the idea, he said, just start. Just start, just see if you could get a yarn from this particular wool. And so I set about doing that and said to see if we could get an and, and Herdwick wool is not something you don't really want to wear it next to the skin. It's very tough, it's coarse, it's very hard to manage. But I thought, well, where do you get the the best yarns or Yorkshire? So that's where I went to see if I could get, you know, track down lots of mills. Most of them, they were so nice, lovely Yorkshire people said to me, we're not touching that. <laughs> we are not touching that. That is going to contaminate our mill, all our fine merinos. And until I got to one mill and they said, well, let's give it a go. They said they would put it through the mill, but I would have to fit in with all these other fine yarns, worsted yarns. So I was very patient and said, that's fine. Whenever you can slot me in, let's see if we can get this yarn. After about a year and a half, <laughs> this, yarn, this yarn came through. And actually, it was great because this was a worsted mill. So they're very good at tweaking the machines and making something that will be very strong, won't snap, and is durable. It already lends itself, the wool, to that. But the tricky thing is getting it through the machines. But they're absolutely wonderful there and they stuck at it and they eventually, after a year and a half, got that yarn through. During that time, I was designing these ideas. for, And it was in, in the first instance, I thought this would be great for a men's bag. I thought, you know, this, this would lend itself to something, an alternative, a, a really viable alternative to pure leather or pure canvas. So that's what I was designing for. It turns out in the long run, in the fullness of time, that it goes down both lines now. Men and women are really interested in this tweed. But so we got this yarn through and we then had to get it woven. That was actually a little bit simpler, but that was the next domino. So down that road we went and it actually goes through three mills in Yorkshire. And it goes from the yarn making to the weaving and then onto the finishes. 
And so we got it woven and then we got it finished. And the, and the finishing is really interesting because it is pressed. It's all, the fabric is all in its natural state. So it's not dyed or it, it doesn't have anything in it other than this, the lanolin, like I said, which gives it this water resistance. It makes it really tough. And then they just wash it in well water below the mill. So the, all the water is used from, they're drawing it from, it's coming down the valleys, down the streams, and then they're drawing it from below the mill. So that's wonderful in itself. And so then we have got this wonderful fabric. That was a real, like, that was a success point. That was, a, we would give our, you know, ourselves a pat on the back for that. Well, on that point, Ali, what were the initial challenges in transforming uh, Herdwick wool into that premium fabric for Ruskin's bags? How did the team overcome the obstacles they encountered? The next challenge was to get these design, use these designs and get them made into bags. And we sampled and the first samples came back and we were really, really disappointed. So it wasn't what we were wanting to do. What the intention was to elevate this fabric, mm. elevate this wool yarn fabric and take it to another level and see if we could place it in a premium position because it is a precious natural resource and Herdwick are a rare breed but actually it realises very little and at that time I think it was between 50 pence and a pound that it realised per fleece for the farmers. It's changed since then, it's definitely gone up with more and more people starting to use it but at that time it was sometimes even discarded. Uh, mm. The fleeces were shown because they, for the welfare of the sheep, they have to shear them. But it was actually discarded in some respects. And so we were wanting to see if we could just reposition it entirely and purpose it for a premium luxury bag. And so with the samples coming back as they did, we had to hit a bit of a pause there and see, OK, well, we've decided where do we make our best yarns and tweeds? either Yorkshire or Scotland, and we chose Yorkshire, where do we make our best bags? Well, mm. one of the places is Italy. So we had a rethink and we thought, OK, let's see if we can find somebody who would be interested in working with us on this, this project. And after a lot of research, we found these two brothers in a small team in Rome, really can-do and curious craftsmen of a family-run small workshop that goes back generations. And they said, well, we're leather specialists, really, but just send us a small sample of your fabric and we'll see what we think to it. So I did, fingers crossed at that point. And they came back and said, oh, well, send us your designs and we'll just we'll just take a look at them. So I did. Uh, okay, so give us a, a, a decent amount of the fabric and we'll see, we'll just sample. Let's just see, we'll just sample. Great, this is wonderful. So they sampled and I waited quite some time as this process kind of gradually spun out. And then they came back and ah, that was the moment. I was like, ah, this is what we wanted out of all of this. And really, when, then we were away to, the, away to the races. Well, I wanted to ask you a bit about, well, a couple of things actually that are interesting. Because obviously what I often find most interesting in the origin story, especially a pretty long, drawn-out process, which yes. you've described, Ellie, <laughs> is not when you get those eureka moments like that, but yeah. actually when things don't work out, because it's yes. a challenge to so many fundamentals that you've assumed or that, that are aspirations for the brand. So if we just go back slightly, that moment where those samples come through, presume that's the big, you know, the big yeah. reveal, and then yeah. it isn't what you'd set out to do. And I guess people with whom you've shared the vision 
you thought the the view was aligned and it turns out it wasn't quite. I don't know. Was there ever a point then when that threatened your conviction even to to keep going? Or, Or actually, were you so resolute on this path that you were able to move seamlessly on and say, okay, that didn't work, but now I'll look to, in this case, Italy. Or was there an existential threat during those disappointing moments? So I'll tell you that I, growing up in the Lake District as the daughter of a mountaineer, you have to have some tenacity. (laughs) And my dad dragged me up all kinds of mountain routes in the Alps and in the Lake District. And I think there's that in me. So, So I, at that point, I didn't think, no, this can't go ahead. I did think, okay, let's take a breather here and let's pivot. And and I actually did want the full line of provenance to be here in England or in the UK. And in the end, that wasn't to be. But what I really, really did want was to work all the way through with people with the same passion for what they do as we do. So it made sense to keep going and find not just the people who could make these beautiful designs, but that wanted to. And, that are, you know, we, we work very collaboratively with our Italian artisans. And I think I mentioned, you know, they're very curious and they do say, oh, Ali, you keep bringing us these challenges. And I, and I say, yes, I do. I like to keep life interesting for you. <laughs> so, so I think there is something in that too. And, and it's all part of the cumulative effect of all these dominoes that we were hitting and knocking down is all part of Ruskin. You know, because when we talk to people who come into the studio, they're really intrigued to know about all this backstory and they're intrigued to know about the people who have made their back. And then I think that this story is what people help people to fall in love with the design and then it elongates the lifespan of what they have purchased you know that's there's something in that in itself i know there is a lot talked about sustainability and we always take that from the point of view what are we genuinely able to sustain as a a brand as our artisans what can they cope with what can they stand what's the time pressure how much can we produce in terms of the yarn in so many ways what are we able to sustain that is one of the things for us and them that guided us with who to work with Mm. so it was as much who would be interested in is intrigued in this as what's their quality of production and talk to me a bit about how you integrate feedback and perspectives from your clients then, from your consumers, because presumably, you've mentioned already, they love the, they want to hear. And, they've, and in fact, all many more consumers, particularly of premium products, are absolutely insistent. They're very rigorous about yeah. getting guarantees about provenance and, and origin yes. stories. When they feed back to you, do you try and incorporate their views, criticisms, yeah. maybe? Yeah. Probably not many, but some. It, <laughs> Into your process, you're very active about trying to to do that. Is that important? Because they become part of the story as well, don't they? Yeah, as as the end user. Absolutely, and and I say that just what you've said. I say that to them in the studio, and I love to hear about how you get on with your Ruskin. And you know, if you're passing, come in and tell me about how it's going. But I can also tell you that at least four designs have come directly from conversations with customers. And you know, going forwards, I think that will continue to happen. So we're we're then that kind of upstream thinking of what are people really looking for. Let's respond to that. Some of that we are, we've talked about on a, one of our blogs, you know, that it is actually inspired by you, what we're creating here. So it does. And then if there is anything ever that we need to work on, perhaps on 
corners that they are wearing that we need to change the the length of the leather strip to make sure that we're not wearing on the tweed but it's the leather that's covering it those sort of smaller adjustments are really helpful too and we can feed those back to our artisans and then and then again that leads us down a very collaborative path of how how can we solve solve this together i i've designed this and what about from your point of view how could you just adjust it slightly and so that's really valuable in itself as well and i like that there are not just the components but the process itself is kind of organic which is kind of nice yeah. it's never it's never finished that's something that's exciting um what about the hero the product obviously yep. we, we only have the the medium of sound is with us you have reached for a beautiful bag here describe what we're looking at here <laughs> to our audience if they're not familiar yes give them the kind of the the ruskin the, give it give us the sort of the the ruskin 101 a little bit yeah okay so well this was actually this is the quentin and this was actually the first design this was what do men need they need a lovely they need to raise their game a little bit on those streets of london so don't, don't even, look at me while you're saying no, that, no, no, yeah? no, i would never um and or even internationally let's say and something I also I think is that they like to talk about it as well so I had we we had you know come up with this idea that it's got to be something with lasting integrity so you know it's it's something that has this full line of providence with the tweed right down to the farm level and then there's lots to talk about and I think people like who have purchased they like to talk about you like to say, oh, well, I got this in this studio in Oxford, and this tweed it comes from the Lake District, and oh, and the workmanship isn't it beautiful? These are from two brothers and a small team of artisans in Rome who have crafted it. So this was the first design, and we'd like to think that it's got lasting integrity and an elongated lifespan, which comes from you know the workmanship and this very durable tweed from this Herdwick sheep. And a compliment I'll pay at first glance, it looks like something that you would expect someone to say, yes, this design hasn't changed in like two generations, yeah. which I mean absolutely is a, as a compliment because it's traditional okay. in the in the best way, not, not pejoratively at all. But as you said, there's a timeless yes. quality, which I think is, is, is super important. Yeah. Um, the other thing probably to mention is often people talk about a patina in leather. Now, it's interesting about the tweed is that with wear... What it does is it gradually, as it's caught against things in travel, it wears so that you see this beautiful deep weave, worsted weave. So as well as the leather improving, I think the tweed also comes out with this lovely characteristic that people also like to see and touch. And that's another thing from our studio. Is when people come in the studio, you see their eyes go around and then they start, hands go out and as they walk past, they're touching. <laughs> and so this goes back to my comment really about people being hardwired for touch. Yeah. And so I, I always say, you know, pick it up, touch it, feel it, have a look no, it's inside. Lovely. Well, and then I guess in every every piece then, because of that, whatever the equivalent of patina is with tweed, yes. it, each piece becomes kind of a unique, well, they are unique pieces, but, you know, yes, that, yeah. that is something presumably quite special because you have that particular yeah. relationship. I think with, we need a coin with your item. Yeah. What is to... the patina? I'll leave that to you, Alex, <laughs> to, to come up with. Just, just on a point of kind of, I guess a logistical point about business. When you have something that, you know, you mentioned, you know, you're talking about this very particular fabrics that you're sourcing. It's necessarily of a scale, which mm. is a bit smaller. It's specialist. As your brand then grows and becomes more successful and demand presumably increases, potentially exponentially, given how beautiful the, the product is. What does that do? Because I guess there's only so much you can do quickly, yes. <laughs> given this complex story, as you've said. What what does that mean? Or is that good in a way? Because it means you could check any 
vainglorious plans for global domination. Uh, and when you we have take to, over the world. Well, no, mean? and you have to because there, there is something. There is something of a. I don't know of a of a necessary. There's sort of almost like restrictions potentially on the pace of of growth and scale. How how does that? How yeah. do you make sense of that? How do you calibrate that? Yes. Well, I think. I mean, when we talked about sort of the sensory and the touch being part of Ruskin, I think ingrained in Ruskin also is a slower pace, and we are not going to be able to take over the world. And I think we're okay with that. <laughs> I think that there is something in people passing by the studio or finding, discovering it online or elsewhere and finding something special, Mm. you know, something that's a a little bit more unique and hard to find, that we can still hold on to what our values are, you know, that it isn't a mass-produced, it is artisanal and it does have limitations that, but I think we're okay with that. <laughs> well, it certainly seems to be going very well. They're beautiful things, and I would encourage people. What's the best thing? Obviously, people can presumably find information online, etc. But I sense that your favourite way of connecting is probably in person. What should oh, people do? Should they head to the head to the studio and yeah, knock on the door? We, and... we have a lovely uh, little studio in Oxford, and we always love to extend a warm welcome there to anyone who's interested. And uh, yeah, there's so much value in seeing. Like we were just talking about that, you know, just seeing people in person. So. Yeah, the studio or online. Really. Stop by or go for a wander in the lakes and get, oh, get your inspiration where I'll the story come with began. You. I'll come with you anytime, anytime. <laughs> there we go. Uh, take Ali up on the offer, everybody. Um, <laughs> you can find information on there on, on the website. Ali, it's been terrific hearing about the uh, the adventure so yeah, far. Yeah, it is an adventure. Uh, thanks, thanks for coming to tell us about <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Ali Abdullah, the founder of Ruskin. And you can learn more about the brand and its story by heading to ruskinengland.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Up next on the programme, Monocle's fashion editor is joining me. Stay tuned. Well, I'm delighted to say Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Tudosi, joins me now. And Natalie, it's funny, reflecting on that Ruskin story, there are a lot of the values that are really key values for Monocle when we look at brands to watch or trends or themes. And that's about making things really sustainably, genuinely sustainably. The value of craft, of locality, provenance. These have been perennial themes we've covered since Monocle began. But I think in fashion in particular, these are really the kind of values which we're going to be keeping in focus in the new year as well, right? Absolutely. And I think what's exciting is that there are now brands like Ruskin, a new generation of brands as well, that are really excited about reviving those traditions and feel really strongly about artisanal values, about doing things in the right way, which is very exciting to watch. And and like you said, Monaco has been kind of championing these values and these ideas from the very beginning. But the industry, the bigger industry is now on board as well. And then there's a lot of young names to discover that kind of follow that that route and yeah a lot of things to watch well speaking of things to watch brands names whether it's individual designers or houses when it comes to 24 what are you most excited about i know you probably get asked this all the time like what should i be buying so that i'm ahead of the ahead of the trend curve I don't know if that's annoying or it's always fun to talk about, but what have you got an eye on? Is it particular brands? Maybe is there particular styles that are coming back? Give us a couple of couple of thoughts. I think since we're talking about the world of accessories and handbags, I think 
what's really exciting is to stop thinking about logos and kind of trends and discover brands like Ruskin that have really interesting stories to tell. You can connect with the founder, with the team and, and get to know them and, and buy something that has a bit more meaning. I think that's kind of what I would say a trend and then a way to shop now. And I and there's a lot of other different names to watch that have been growing rapidly in the, in the next year. And I think that they'll do so even more in 2024. I was in Warsaw earlier this year and uh, met with Zofia Hilak, who is a young designer who started her own accessories brand, mainly leather goods. And what she's doing is working with local manufacturers and really trying to change the perceptions around the Made in Poland label and, and how incredible the quality can be that Poland can can make luxurious uh, products. And I think going a little bit off the beaten track and, and finding these names and, and not relying on, on a logo or a trend is the way forward in the new year. And we obviously, we love that idea of also nation brands and how they're leading houses and their individual brands can say something more actually about about the country and about the culture of a place that's super interesting and i know you've already mentioned to me a couple of times this idea of keeping different geographies in mind i know that it will, it's going to be a big kind of paris year for for monocle just with the focus of the olympics but so many of the big players doing so much interesting stuff what about some other geographies brand wise i know that in southeast asia for example there's a it's just a very dynamic scene maybe that's somewhere exciting to look whether it's accessories or just brands to watch in 24 I think Southeast Asia has been growing the, the past few years and even more will be happening in, in 2024, again, because they're really becoming a lot more proud about what they have to offer and about local brands, local creativity. And when you travel there, there, there is so much to discover, whether it's visiting a local boutique and seeing their point of view on, on kind of how they curate brands. Small details, I think, just walking around Tokyo and, and seeing how people are dressed. It might be just a, a centimeter difference on the length of, of a trouser, but it is a different perspective. And I think, again, in Tokyo has kind of come back uh, on its own after the pandemic and uh, shops are reopening. A lot of the local designers are are back on track, getting a lot more commissions from customers all over the world as well. So I think it will be very exciting to watch. Well, I know Tyler was in Tokyo, I think at the start of December, and I chatted to him briefly when he returned. And he was so excited about, yeah, the, the dynamism that was back, this feeling of you know, a city, a country that was really going places again. So that's exciting. I know you said you didn't want to talk about specifics, but are there any overarching trends? We're talking a little bit about accessories, about bags. So not not so much, no, no garish logos, but like big bags, small bags. Any any kind of little hints or tips for our listeners who yeah, value your, your judgment, Natalie? Um, I think, and it's good news, those kind of very gimmicky small bags are kind of a thing of the past. And designers are thinking a little bit more practically and offering kind of big oversized totes that you can kind of carry your life in, take with you when you're traveling, take to work. And it's really elegant unisex bags that kind of anyone can buy and wear. So I think that's good news. And it's it good news is for a, me. a trend. Yeah, Do you I reckon think... I could fit so oversized? Could I get a, like a five-year-old, maybe an eight-year-old in one of those, do you reckon? I'm sure. There, there is some. I, Bottega Veneta actually on the runway had a huge oversized bag that you could 
probably like fit both your kids in. <laughs> oh, well, if, if you're tuning in, anyone from there, do keep me in mind. Uh, Natalie, terrific tips and thoughts for 24. Thanks very much for sharing your excellent insights with us as always. And that's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka every Friday. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Jack Dewars. You can follow us and catch up with the show at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. To contact the team, email Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. Listener.